Um, so, so I'm going to talk about Yuskogen's um, peremptory norms of general international law. Um, I'm going to start off by just saying uh, in a book in the um, early part of the decade, um, Alan Pillay described, or actually noted, observed, that Yuskogen's had um, the same initials as Jesus Christ. Um, you will recall, of course, that Jesus Christ, um, in addition to many other miracles, um, had turned water um, into wine. Um, like the original JC, Euskogens is potentially um, a miraculous concept, um, able to do all manner of things. Um, if you are an international lawyer interested in international law, you will know that the idea um, that uh, a norm, a rule, can eviscerate all of immunity is quite miraculous. And yet for some, that is exactly what Yuskogens can do. Um, the very idea which has been postulated that um, if Yuskogens norm is at play in any dispute, then automatically the International Court of Justice or some other um, uh, court or tribunal will have jurisdiction um, is an argument that has been made. All of these are miraculous things. Um, and indeed, even if you think about those arguments of Yuskogens, those consequences of Yuskogens that are not so controversial, um, they are quite frankly, from an international law perspective, quite um, transformative, quite... Um, maybe not miraculous, but at least revolutionary. Um, the idea that obligations freely assumed by states through a treaty or in, uh, or in any other manner um, can be invalidated simply because, and I put simply in inverted commas, because there exists this idea of use Kogans, um, is quite revolutionary. Um, so, so even when we think about basic consequences of Yuskogans that we can all accept. Um, they're quite miraculous and quite different from normal consequences of other rules of international law. Um, so, so it's not surprising that in many works, and one here can think of Bianchi's work, D'Amato's work, uh, Janice, um, uh, Shelton have described Yuskogans in these words, magical, miraculous, superpowers, and so on and so on and so on. Yet in spite of its importance, in spite of um, the miraculous quality of Yuskogans, perhaps maybe even because of it, right? because of this importance, because of um, its potentially miraculous power, um, there remains a lot of uncertainty surrounding its core content, a lot of uncertainty surrounding sort of what makes it and what its consequences are, and all manner of theoretical debates. Um, Against this background, the International Law Commission decided in 2015 that it would take up this topic and would produce draft conclusions um, to clarify questions um, um, relating to Yuskogans. Let me confess, I, I myself proposed a topic in 2013, and when I proposed a topic, um, I was quite certain that the ILC... Um, somebody mentioned that the ILC is very conservative. I cannot remember. You mentioned that ILC is very conservative. Um, and I imagine that the ILC would, would 
find it very difficult to accept the topic, and I fully expected that the IELC would say, thank you very much for proposing this topic, oh, you young new member, but no thank you. And I thought I would go off and write a book on these Kogans. Um, but that was not to be. The ILC, in fact, decided that it would take up the topic, which was quite a surprise to me. Um, there were some objections, and so you can imagine. I proposed a topic in 2013. The commission only decided to take it up in 2015. Um, and this period is largely because there were some objections. Um, there were, I would say, sort of three categories of objections, if you like. Um, and these categories impacted a lot on the work of the commission um, throughout, throughout the period that the commission um, was involved in, in the topic. Um, the first of these was, and really this was the most important one, and we'll talk a little bit about that, was that there just simply isn't sufficient practice to justify, right? If, if it is true that the commission bases its work on practice, on state practice, then we simply cannot do this topic because there just simply isn't state practice on this work. Sure, there are a lot of cases that sort of mention it, but they don't address or clarify the things that we would have to address or clarify. So let's not do this topic. That was one objection. Um, so another objection to the commission taking up the topic was that, and I guess in a sense this goes back to this idea that it's a magical, miraculous concept, that you know there's a glass ceiling above which not even the commission should reach, and certainly the ILC is well beyond this glass ceiling. It's such, in other words, it's such a sensitive topic um, that there is a possibility for the commission to do great damage, right? So the commission, so remember, not everything that the commission produces is necessarily good, right? So the commission can take up a topic um, and make a really bad mess of it. Now, of course, it depends on your perspective, not the commission has done a good job or not. Um, but that was certainly one fear, that the commission could do damage to this topic. Um, the third, uh, the third uh, category of objection was if you're not going to push the boundaries, and we're probably not going to push the boundaries, then don't do this topic. Um, the typical example that was given, and I guess in a sense one can say it has come to pass, um, is that if you're, you're proposing that we take up, for example, a list of Yuskogen's norms, well, we can either do it in five minutes, right? If we don't do it in five minutes, you're looking at at least 50 years. And there is some truth to that. So take your pick, right? So you can either say, well, we're simply going to take those norms that the commission has already identified and simply read them back to the international community. Or you can say, well, we're going to be innovative and we are going to try and come up with our own original list. And the argument was, if we're going to do that, then we're simply not going to be successful. It's just not possible. And I agree with that argument, by the way, right? So, so that, these were the three main objections. Um, I mean, essentially, the argument of this last member was, was that uh, the commission is going to fail if it takes this topic, and that will not be good for the commission. Um, I end with this last objection um, because, of course, the commission has not failed. Well, I mean, it depends, again, it depends on how you identify success or, or how you describe or define success. Um, but at least the commission in, in, in um, uh, this last summer um, was able to adopt a set of draft conclusions 
um, on parental norms of gender international law. So at least in terms of producing something, the Commission has been successful. Now, we can argue about whether or not that something is worth the paper on which it's written, and I'm sure there'll be lots of questions um, in that direction. But at least the Commission um, was able um, to produce something. Let me say a couple of preliminary points before giving an overview of the draft conclusions that the Commission um, adopted. <clears throat> the first point that I should make is that um, the topic on Luis Kogans was done differently from other topics, and maybe this is one of the reasons why it hasn't um, received as much attention as other topics, is that unlike other topics, um, the Commission decided to adopt its draft conclusions at one go. So you didn't have what normally happens, the Commission adopting three draft conclusions one year, next year adopting another set of you know, three or four, and building up the draft conclusions in that way. The draft conclusions were essentially negotiated um, behind closed doors, um, and nothing officially came out until the summer. Now, obviously, there were things that came out, so um, there were some members of the commission that wrote one or two things, and you also had the, the statements of the chair of the drafting committee, but officially, the commission had never adopted anything until 2019, right? So that's the first thing to bear in mind. Um, the second thing to bear in mind is, uh, and here it's really constraints under which the Commission work, and, and these are practice-related constraints. So I said earlier that the Commission's currency, the Commission's, um, the thing on which the Commission bases its work is supposed to be practice. Um, and in general, this means that the Commission um, is not, or at least ought not to be free to make its own choices, its own free choices about what the world should look like, about what the correct course of action should be, the Commission's work is supposed to be constrained by practice. So to the extent that something, no matter how noble, is not based on practice, then the Commission should look the other way. Right? Um, so that's a, <clears throat> a constraint that ought to be kept in mind in sort of assessing the success, failure, or otherwise of the Commission's work. Um, a second constraint, specifically with respect to this topic, which tends to sort of pull in a different direction, of course, is that, well, there isn't a lot of practice, right? I mean, there's a lot of rhetoric, but there isn't a lot of practice. And so the question is, if, if you, you say on the one hand that you're constrained by practice and that you have to follow practice, but on the other hand, you're saying, well, there isn't a lot of practice, um, sort of that creates a little... Um, uh, um, a little bit of attention. Um, the third constraint that I would like you to bear in mind as you assess the work of the Commission with by the way, let me pause here to say um, I'm not here acting as a PR representative of the Commission or even of the draft conclusions um, even though I took the leadership um, in respect of, of, of this particular work. There are some choices that were made by the Commission that I myself am not a big fan of. So for the fact that I'm relaying these constraints is not to um, suggest that you should look at them kindly. Please do make your own choices about whether or not this was good work or not. Um, but the third constraint that I do think you ought to bear in mind is the fact that the Commission is made up of independent experts who have very different legal political, 
and philosophical views about the law, um, about the good life, um, and so on. All of them have very different interests. Um, and yeah, members of the commission have agendas as well, right? So, so all of these, of course, makes it very difficult in that room to come up with a top, with an outcome that's going to be pleasing to everyone. Um, you will see, when I take you through the draft conclusions, uh, I'm sure there'll be things that you will like and there'll be things that you don't like. That applies equally to me. All right. um, so the, the commission's work on this topic, uh, if you include the, the commentary, um, consists of roughly 70 pages. So obviously I'm not going to go through all of that. Um, all I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a really quick overview of the draft conclusions um, and then I'm going to discuss some of the more difficult provisions. I hope that that's a fair way to proceed. I think that's the only way that I could think of proceeding without um, boring you by reading um, uh, everything. So I'll start with um, an overview of the draft conclusions. Um, the draft conclusions are divided into four parts. Uh, part one is called, no surprises, the introduction. And it consists of three draft conclusions. Um, the first draft conclusions is just basically describes the scope of the topic. So the second draft conclusion is essentially um, the definition of use cogens. And here I'll pause a little bit and say something because I'm not going to discuss it in sort of the controversial or, diff or difficult provision. Um, um, it's taken essentially from uh, Article 53 of the Vienna Convention. And that's going to be one of the criticisms that I expect will be directed at these draft conclusions as a whole, um, this idea that, oh, but you just copied and pasted from these texts, right? And so this is a typical example of, uh, of a provision where we simply took the second sentence of Article 53 of the Vienna Convention and put it there. Um, by the way, I will not agree with that particular criticism. I can defend um, the Commission's choice in that respect, but in any event, that's one thing that you should bear in mind as far as that's concerned. So that's draft conclusion two. Um, draft conclusion three is one that I will speak a little bit about. It's titled, um, I think it's still titled, Characteristics of Use Corgans, uh, or Characteristics of Peremptory Norms. Oh, no, it's, it's now titled General Nature of um, Peremptory Norms of, of, of Gender International Law. And it identifies um, three characteristics of um, Use Corgans. <clears throat> Um, namely that they uh, protect and reflect the fundamental values of the international community, um, are hierarchically superior, um, and are universally applicable. Um, that was a controversial provision. I'll come back to it in a little bit. Um, um, so that's part one. Uh, part two of the draft conclusions, in a sense, is at the core, um, and it's one of the least controversial parts, which is interesting. It's at the core, but it's also least controversial. That's not to say there, there aren't many issues, and that's not to say um, um, that there won't be criticism. Um, but I think if you look at everything, um, um, the draft conclusions as a whole, you'll find that that's the least controversial. Um, last week, the General Assembly of the United Nations was uh, commenting on cluster one of the ILC's report um, and I dare say draft conclusions four to nine received the least attention in the criticism from states. I shouldn't say criticism, in the comments, because there were some positive comments as well, in the comments from states um, on the draft conclusions. Um, and it is titled identification. So it, it tells you what the commission thinks 
is the right methodology <coughs> for identifying norms of use cogens, and this methodology is essentially based on Article 53. Um, draft conclusion, so um, draft conclusion four highlights the two requirements, and so on the base of Article 53, the Commission comes up with two requirements, one of which is that the norm in question must be a norm of general international law, um, and then a second requirement um, that uh, the norm in question, this norm of general international law must be accepted and recognized by the international community of state as a whole um, as one from which no derogation is permitted. So essentially um, um, what has been referred to in the literature as opinio juris cogentis. Um, draft conclusion five um, describes, in fact, so after this, the draft conclusion and the rest of the part just basically expand a little more on these two requirements. So draft conclusion five um, uh, is directed at this first requirement that it must be a norm of general international law I and mean, really identifies three bases for use Kogan's norm. The first and most obvious one being custom international law. Um, and then the draft conclusions are a bit um, ambivalent about general principles of law and treaty law. Um, and I think this is really a result of the difference of views within the commission. My own view, for example, is that um, treaty rules as such can never form the bases of um, a norm of use cogens. Uh, they can certainly embody such, but not, not themselves as such as a uh, um, a basis for parentry norms of general international law. While I think that it is at least theoretically, it ought to be at least theoretically possible for general principles of law. Um, there were some members of the commission that took exactly the opposite view. There were some members of the commission that decided actually none of them. So ultimately the commission adopts a, an approach which treats them equally, um, but says that they may um, also form the basis of, right? So which in a sense sort of, uh, puts them in a lower category to custom international law, if one wants to put it that way. Um, so that's draft conclusion five. Um, draft conclusion six then essentially describes what is meant by acceptance and recognition, this idea of uh, <coughs> recognizing um, uh, the peremptory status um, and distinguishes acceptance and recognition for the purpose of use Kogan's from acceptance for the purposes of custom international law and recognition for the purposes of general principles of law. Um, again, I think it's rather um, not so controversial. Draft conclusion seven um, hones down on uh, what is meant by the international community of states as a whole. So it describes that it must be states and that other actors, while their recognition and acceptance might have some relevance for contextualization, um, what we're actually looking at is we're looking at the recognition and acceptance of states. Um, it describes that it must be a very large majority of states. Um, it doesn't tell us what a very large majority is, but it at least describes that it must be a very large majority of states. It, it's also explicit that this does not mean that it should be all states, right? So a very large majority is not all states. The commentary um, go into some description um, uh, of the fact that we're really not looking at just numbers, but there's also a qualitative element. So um, are the states that you're looking at or that you're talking about, whose, whose evidence you're looking at, 
generally representative um, and so on and so on. So that's draft conclusion seven. Uh, draft conclusions eight and nine just simply talk about the evidence. What kind of evidence would you produce? So draft conclusion eight is on the primary evidence and draft conclusion nine is the subsidiary evidence. So, so stuff, materials that, that do not emanate from states but that are still relevant. So things like um, judicial decisions of international courts and so on and so on and so on. So that's part two. Part three is uh, concerns consequences. So you can imagine, so the consequences of use Kogan. So you can imagine um, this is the stuff that lots of people were waiting for, right? This was going to be um, uh, 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 the commission's real contribution. Because to a certain extent, I mean, there are, <coughs> if you think about the identification, there are different theories out there about identification, but there's a general agreement, I think, that the, that the approach of the commission um, um, uh, is a standard approach, if you like. But consequences, there are wide views about the consequences. The first draft conclusions in part three are also not controversial, largely because they're based on Article 53 and 64 of the Vienna Convention, so the bifurcated approach of sort of looking at the consequences for treaties where the treaty at the time of its conclusion is contradicted Kogan's and then the other one, the Article 64 situation where, where at the time of its conclusion it's not um, in conflict with the use Kogan's but then a subsequent norm of use Kogan's emerges and so on and so on. So, so there's that approach. Um, um, that's largely based, um, uh, as I said, on the provisions in the Vienna Convention, so that's not so controversial. What might be controversial, what might become controversial, although I didn't hear a single state uh, mention it last week, um, uh, but what might become controversial is draft conclusion 13, which concerns reservations. And here, I say it might be controversial because there were some arguments and some very strong and I, I think um, justified arguments that the commission ought to depart from um, the guide to reservations and it should explicitly find or explicitly conclude that a reservation to a treaty norm um, which is a peremptory norm ought to be invalid. As you know, the guide to practice did not come to that conclusion, but it did say that the state would remain bound by the peremptory norm itself, even if the reservation is invalid, and the commission essentially adopts this approach. Apart from this, I don't think that there's anything in the treaty part um, that's controversial. Then um, draft conclusions 14... Uh, 15 and 16 concern consequences for customary international law, um, unilateral acts, um, and decisions of other, uh, um, or other decisions and resolutions of international organizations. Um, again, not really controversial, um, uh, even though not based on any particular text. Um, it largely follows the uh, bifurcated <coughs> approach of the Vienna Convention with respect to treaties. And so it essentially takes the treaty rule and it applies them, these treaty rules, to these other sources of obligations. So that's draft conclusions 14, 15, and 16. Um, and then we head off into the state responsibility draft conclusions, um, or those draft conclusions related to state responsibility. Again, not very con controversial. Uh, again, largely based on um, the articles um, on state responsibility. So draft conclusion 17 um, concerns uh, the relationship between peremptory norms of general international law 
um, and erga omnes obligations and what this would mean for standing, right? Um, draft conclusion, so that's draft conclusion 17. Uh, draft conclusion 18 is based on draft article 26 of the Articles on State Responsibility, um, which concerns um, uh, uh, circumstances precluding wrongfulness, right? So the fact that you cannot uh, um, advance circumstances precluding wrongfulness to justify a breach of a peremptory norm. Uh, draft conclusion 19 concerns uh, draft conclusion 19 concerns uh, particular consequences of peremptory norms of general international law. So the duty to uh, um, um, not to render assistance, the duty to cooperate to bring to an end, um, circumstances uh, created by by so on and so on, right? Um, and, and the duty not to recognize. Um, so again, not really controversial. Uh, I mean, I think the only controversial thing in any of these draft conclusions related to state responsibility was a special rapporteur I had proposed that the commission should drop the word serious from um, the, particular, the particular consequences related draft conclusion. So it should be, um, well, any breach of a peremptory norm um, should should draw these consequences. Um, in any event, um, any breach of use uh, Kogan should be seen as a serious breach. Uh, but the commission decided to stick to the text, um, um, which, when well, yeah, um, but that's, that's, that's not. So what's interesting is that the commentary um, uh, highlights this, this disagreement. And the reason it highlights this disagreement was in the hope that states would comment on it so that we can come back to it on second reading. Uh, but I don't, at least in the statements that I was able to listen to um, last week, I don't think many states um, have commented on that. So that's draft conclusion uh, 19. Now, draft conclusion 20 concerns interpretation. Um, and basically what draft conclusion 20 puts forward is that uh, to the extent possible, a norm, um, a rule of international law, and so that's whether it's a treaty rule, um, a custom international law rule, a resolution, whatever, should be interpreted or the content should be identified in such a way, if at all possible, that it's consistent with a norm of use covenants to avoid um, invalidity, right? Um, so this, in a sense, is a sort of a... Uh, an application of uh, systemic integration, Article 31, 3C of the Vienna Convention, et cetera, et cetera. Again, not very controversial. We did spend a lot of time on it, but largely drafting issues and um, um, not really differences of views as to the content. So that's draft conclusion 20. Um, draft conclusion 21 is one that was, um, is one that was near, and, well, I shouldn't say near and dear to my heart. It was one that I thought was really important. Um, but I can also tell you that it's one that received the roughest ride um, last year at the General Assembly. Um, and it was, look, one of the reasons why Muskogans um, creates complications is that potentially it can threaten, quote, unquote, the stability of international relations. If, you know, if any state can say, well, I'm not going to comply with that rule anymore because it's contrary to use Kogans. I'm not going to comply with the UN Security Council resolution because it's in conflict with the norm of use Kogans and so on and so on. So, so it's important to have a dispute settlement mechanism to, to resolve all of these questions. The Vienna Convention is a treaty, and so it can include a dispute 
settlement mechanism, uh, which is binding for states parties to the Vienna Convention and uh, those states that haven't uh, made reservations to it. It's difficult to do that here because this is not a treaty, right? And it's difficult to just simply import the provisions of the Vienna Convention on the dispute settlement resolution because if you're not a party to the Vienna Convention, or even worse, you're a party, but you specifically reserved on those provisions, then you're going to say, you know, but this is not acceptable. So that's, that was a complicated um, um, outcome. And as you know, the Vienna Convention essentially, for the application of Article 53 and 64, essentially creates um, um, jurisdiction of the ICJ. This couldn't be done here. So what we did, at least that's what I thought we did, although when we did the commentary, I realized that a lot of the people that supported it uh, now had a, you know, had a different interpretation of what it meant. What we did do was we said, um, you, so states, if there's a dispute concerning the application of either parts, uh, part two or part three, uh, states would uh, first engage in amicable uh, um, means of resolving the dispute. And if they're not successful, right, and then there are some timelines there, which are obviously not law, but if they're not successful, and one of the states, the objecting state, um, uh, offers, invites the other state to send the matter to the ICJ, then the other state, um, if it doesn't accept, then there's a presumption that, in fact, their argument is um, not correct, right? So, so in other words, it encourages but does not oblige states um, to, to take the matters to the ICJ for resolution in the event that, that there isn't an agreement between them. Um, so as I said, um, um, a lot of states are very critical of this. Um, and and basically, um, I mean, there were some statements that I missed because of the time difference. Uh, you know, I mean, I love use Kogans, but I wasn't going to stay up until midnight every night to listen to this statement by state. Um, uh, but basically, on the basis of what I heard, and I will go through all the statements in the next couple of months, uh, but on the basis of what I heard, that's probably a provision that is likely to uh, not to see um, uh, or not to be retained on second reading. I mean, uh, you know, and I think it'll be a shame, uh, but unless I can f figure out a way to uh, to uh, uh, save it, I think it's it's probably uh, yeah. I mean, it'll be a struggle to keep it. So that's uh, draft conclusion uh, twenty. Um, draft conclusion twenty one. Draft conclusion twenty one about. So. Uh, consequences, draft conclusion. No, no, I've just spoken about draft conclusion 21, right. So, um, so that's part three. The final part of the draft conclusions is titled simply general provisions. Title general, yeah. Um, it's titled simply general provisions. And it consists of two provisions that are both very controversial and both attracted a lot of attention um, at, the, uh, uh, at the General Assembly last week. I'll just simply say what they are. Um, and then I'll talk about them when I speak about the controversial provisions. So um, uh, the first one is a without prejudice clause. And like without, with all without prejudice clauses, um, it has a very long history. In short, it's about immunities. I mean, that's, that's its history. Its history is um, it's about immunities. I'll speak a little bit about that. Um, and then the last one, and for this, <coughs> I blame for this particular one, because it also received a rough ride 
in the Commission. This is a, uh, it's titled Non-Exhaustive List of Norms of Use Corgans, or Non-Exhaustive List. Um, and for this, I blame uh, your colleague, Dapo Akande um, and Eric Bjorge. They gave me the idea that this is the, the easiest way to resolve the particular difficulty that you fail f face, and I, as I said, um, uh, it got butchered. So let me just discuss some of the, and I'll do it really quickly because I spoke much longer than I had hoped. Um, I'll talk about some of the, 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 the complications. I'll skip some. In fact, I'll just talk about three. First one is draft conclusion 23. So, so, so this particular provision, um, as, as I said, concerned the characteristics of use Kogan's, um, these fundamental values. Um, this was proposed in the very first report um, and I proposed it almost as a sort of a soft landing to say let's 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 get together as a commission and at least here are a couple of things that we can easily agree upon. Um, but I was surprised and shocked that that there were a large number of members of the commission that said you cannot say that peremptory norms of general international law um, uh, reflect and protect the fundamental values of the international community. There's simply no basis for that, right? Um, and you can imagine that these are uh, con conservative members of the commission. Um, so this was a really difficult provision. In fact, this is one of the most difficult provisions to, to adopt. It came to a point where I thought, if we do not adopt this, then, then I cannot be associated with the topic and I may have to resign. I mean, it was... Um, um, uh, and, and that also, I think, goes to show you a little bit about the importance of who's a member of the commission. So this was discussed in 2016. Um, in 2017 the composition of the commission changed a lot and it became a lot more progressive and it was a surprise how easy it was to adopt it. Not only that, some members of the commission were saying uh, we shouldn't just adopt it, but we should actually make draft conclusion three or the contents of draft conclusion three the criteria for identification of norms of use corporates. In any event, so that didn't happen. Um, the without prejudice clause, its history is, um, uh, is embedded in the whole debate on immunities. Uh, in, in the third report, uh, I had proposed a draft conclusion that would mimic, I'm not sure if you're familiar, if you're following the articles on, um, on um, immunity, but essentially mimic the famous draft article seven and provide that there is no, that there is no immunity, um, there's no immunity that's your name materiae for breaches of um, use corgans. Right? Um, and of course, there was a huge debate. Needless to say, it was very divisive. Um, at the end, the commission decided that it would simply have a without prejudice clause to say that the draft conclusions are without prejudice to particular consequences of particular norms. I mean, so, so the whole thing of immunity, of course, is that it doesn't apply to use Kogans in general. It applies to particular rules of use Kogans, and in a sense, that's not what our project is about. Our project is not about particular rules, and so it became easy then to move away from this immunity provision just simply by noting that. The same with uh, the exhaustive list. In the syllabus, the commission, or I had promised the commission would take up an issue, uh, as an issue, so-called an illustrative list. A couple of problems with this, of course, was uh, how does one do this? Quite apart from the five minutes versus 50 minutes approach, um, how does one do this without, I mean, to identify, for example, self-determination as a normal use Kogans, you would have to do a thorough study of self-determination, that at least two reports for that. You know, and if you're going to do that for all the reports, it's just not clear that the commission could do that, um, was in a position to do that. So, so the approach that 
uh, I adopted in the fourth report was to simply say, well, let's identify um, um, those norms that the Commission had previously identified and then give a justification for them, right? And sort of say, looking back, regardless of whether at the time that the Commission identified them as Uskogans, they met these criteria, let's sort of try to, uh, even if it's not in a thorough manner, um, see if generally they meet the criteria that we've established. Um, uh, the Commission decided to adopt the approach, but not to have in the commentary any detailed explanations. That in the commentary we would simply identify where the Commission uh, identified in its previous work a particular norm, um, where there's different language used, we would identify what the Commission had, you know, um, or how the Commission had referred to it um, in the past. Um, and I think I should stop there so that we can have some time for questions. what your, what was your expectation of what the commission would achieve 